0: Welcome to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. This is your guest co host, Jennifer Milner, here with Dr. Linda Bluestein, the host (laughs) of the Bendy Bodies podcast. Welcome back.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) Last episode, um, we covered a lot of ground. We talked about the different types of hypermobility. You kind of explained the difference between signs and symptoms, um, how hypermobility in itself is neither good nor bad, and it's more instability that we should be looking at. And you kind of described some of the hallmarks, signs of connective tissue disorders for us, Um, and also covered the value of getting a diagnosis, even if there is no cure for things like EDS. So today, I just want to go a little bit deeper into this. Um, and if you have a diagnosis of hypermobility spectrum disorder or EDS or, or MARFINS, um, what are some of the common issues, the comorbidities that might go along with that?
1: So, so this is a fascinating area because, well, we see lots of different explanations in different places. I'd say the bottom line is we don't really know for sure why these things tend to travel together, but we do know that people who have these um, bendy musculoskeletal type pictures do also tend to have other conditions that travel along with this. So the first one being dysautonomia, which means abnormal functioning of the automatic nervous system or autonomic nervous system. And you can think of the autonomic nervous system as controlling the things in your body that you don't think about. So your heart rate, your blood pressure, digestion, um, your pupil size, your sweating, um, so it's, it's very much involved in things like temperature regulation. So dysautonomia just means abnormal function of the autonomic nervous system. And so we know that people who have these bendy musculoskeletal pictures tend to have problems with temperature regulation. They get dizzy when they stand up. Um, they might faint more frequently. And there's a lot of different um, explanations for these. Some of these are related to hormones. Sometimes these things may peak during puberty and then some people um, improve a bit. Um, So if they're happening around the time of puberty, that's better than if they're happening at at other times um, because hopefully some of that's going to improve. But there's lots of treatments that can be done for these dysautonomia conditions as well. So, So that's one thing that comes along with it. Or or can come along with it. Another one is mast cell disorders. So these are disorders that involve um, a type of cell in the body called mast cells, and that's spelled M A S T. Sometimes when I say it, it sounds like M A S S. It's M A S T cells. And these cells think of mast cells as the primary cells involved in um, like allergic type reactions. So Mm. hives, flushing. Um, you know, uh, you know, histamine, when you release histamine and you, you know, uh, if you have environmental allergies and, you know, you start sneezing and the watery eyes and and all of those kinds of things. So people who have these bendy musculoskeletal conditions, we know have a higher incidence of allergic type phenomena, things like asthma. Um, they also have a higher incidence of some of the um, other things that come along with this like flushing or um, anaphylaxis, which involves like throat swelling um, when you're exposed to things that would trigger this kind of reaction and the interesting thing about mast cell disorders is that two of the most common triggers are stress and heat so and, and heat also aggravates dysautonomia so right. so the, the challenge with those three things is that there's a lot of overlap. So it can be very difficult to tease all of this out. So again, I come down to what are the main symptoms that you're having? What is, what is the most important thing to address at this point in time? So right now it could be it's summer. So you're having more issues with dizziness and heat tolerance and that kind of thing. But if you live in a northern climate as winter comes in that stuff gets better but you start having more joint pain so within a person they will have different symptoms at different points in time so so those are two things that tend to go along Um, pain is also another really common problem that people can have Um, they can have different there's all kinds of different types of pain that people can have related to um bendy disorders like eds or hypermobility spectrum disorder, or MARFANS. Um, People can actually have all three types of pain, nociceptive pain, neuropathic pain, and centrally mediated pain. Um, So pain can definitely be a big problem. They can also have gastrointestinal problems. Sometimes um, constipation is a big problem, or um, getting full really quickly when eating. Um, That's called early satiety, so those can be very challenging to deal with. Um, or, or food sensitivities. And then the last thing that I wanted to mention is autoimmune disorders. We know that people who have these conditions do have a higher prevalence of autoimmune disorders like mm-hmm. Hashimoto's thyroiditis, mm-hmm. which is when we develop um, antibodies against our, our thyroid. And so we, again, we don't necessarily understand exactly why all of this happens, But the good thing is that a lot of the treatments that we would do for one of these actually benefits the other. So for me, my whole goal is try to get to the root cause and try to address things at a level where you're going to have the least intervention with the most impact. Mm. So
0: I love that. And, and you and I have talked about this a lot together. And at one point you had told me that, um, your motto is kind of, if you can't connect the issues, think connective tissues.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. I think that's a really good phrase for people to remember. And uh, I didn't come up with it, by the way, but but it was, um, I, I know I've heard Dr. Heidi Collins say that. I'm not sure if she's the one who said it first, but I think that's just such a quick quick and dirty way of, of thinking about it because because yes. And if you think about it, it really makes sense. Our connective tissue is we only have four types of tissue in the body, believe it or not, connective tissue being one of those types. So if our connective tissue is faulty, it can affect so many things in the body. And mm-hmm. we know that there's a close relationship even between mast cells and pain. So it's, again, once you start seeing these disorders, once you start understanding and learning about them, you can't unsee them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yes, I'm glad you brought up that phrase because I think that's a really important um, thing for people to have I started to say in the back of their minds, but maybe even in the front of their minds.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and if I have a dancer that I suspect might be somewhere on that, on that spectrum, I'll ask them lots of different questions. Like how do you react to anesthesia? Um, do your joints hurt all the time? Do you feel faint? You know, just trying to start getting their brains thinking in that direction and to see them go, oh, yes. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, I do (laughs) start easily. Oh, yes. (laughs) And that's when I, in (laughs) my scope of practice, encourage them to go see someone, to talk to them about it. But to see the dots connected for the first time um, can actually be quite encouraging because you're so disheartened with all these things going on and nobody's really drawn them all together in one place before.
1: Right, and I'm so glad that you're asking those questions because this is the challenging thing. We know that these uh, bendy disorders, hypermobility disorders, if you take the whole entire umbrella, they're actually quite common. Mm -hmm. And so some of the things that people have with these disorders, for example, sleep disorder, um, they might that, that's more common in this population. Things like anxiety, depression, um, there, there's a lot of things that occur more commonly, um, things like uh, constipation, some of those are such common things themselves that from a research standpoint, it can be very hard, you need large, large numbers. so it can be very hard to tease out, you know, uh, how prevalent that is. But if you take some of the things that are much more, rare in the general population, like local anesthetic insensitivity. Um, that's a fantastic one to ask about because if a person says, you know, now that you mention it, when I go to the dentist and they inject the local anesthetic, it doesn't work or it takes a lot longer, or they need to give me a lot more. That's not something that's super common in the general population. So it is likely to be more specific to these conditions. So I love that you're asking those questions and the scarring, <laughs> you know, and the scarring too, because the skin is a great window into the body. So we can't see most of our connective tissue, but we can see the skin and, so how, it I reacts. Love, yep. and how it reacts. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yep. And the skin, as you said, gives us so much information with the um, allergic reactions and the way you flush or um, the, the way that it's elastic or how it scars. There's so much information to be had just from that. So if someone starts to suspect they might have a hypermobility disorder, where do they go? Do they see a geneticist, a rheumatologist, a cardiologist? How do they find that first doctor?
1: So, so that's challenging. Um, I would say number one, (laughs) I would say number one, it depends on the symptoms that you're having. Okay. So, so right now it can be very, it can be very uh, time consuming to try to figure out, figure some of this out. I would say that whenever possible, start with your primary care provider, because if you have a good primary care provider, that is so key. They are going to be the hub of your Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, wheeled. You've got all the mm-hmm. spokes going out to all the different specialists and having a good primary care provider is so important. If you, I, I hear this all the time, you know, oh, but my primary care provider didn't know what EDS was. And I ask people to please be patient with that. And at the same time that people sometimes say, I wish my doctor would just say, I don't know. Sometimes they get frustrated when they say, I don't know. So keep in mind that. There is so much more. We are in the age of an information explosion, mm-hmm. and so even within you know uh, my very narrow scope of practice, it's it's almost impossible to stay up on everything. So it's if you're a, a primary care provider, think of the huge breadth of things that you need to know about. But what's most important is that your primary care provider be wanting to help you, and are right. they empathetic, and are they non-judgmental? You know or and, and are they open minded? Now, that being said, it's important that you approach you as the patient, approach them in a way that shows respect for their time and understands the constraints that they're operating under. So, for example, I suggest to people to go to your primary care provider, maybe bring in um, an article or something and say, Hey, I know you're super busy. I know you won't have time to look at this today, but I was wondering if this might apply to me. Um, you know, my my dance uh, coach, Jennifer Milner, shared this with me and said that she thought maybe I sh- maybe this should get checked out. Could could I schedule another visit to come back and discuss this with you? And that way, you're you're opening the door for them and you're making it much easier for them to uh, you know, look at this information and know that that they're also not being judged right I mean that's the other thing is the judging goes both directions right so so I think that it's important to approach it in the right way um, I would start with the primary care provider if possible um, keep in mind that someone like a geneticist well there are um, there are some geneticists like dr. atwal who will do uh, telemedicine visits for a variety of, of states. Most geneticists have a very very long wait list, and for most people, the geneticist isn't going to test them anyway. So there, it's really you know fair a fairly limited population that that's the appropriate first person to go to. Mm. Um, rheumatology is great if you're dealing with a lot of joint pain, and if you get to the right rheumatologist. Um, I know for me personally, the first rheumatologist that I went to. Just made me feel really bad about myself, and really judged me. And um, it was the second rheumatologist that I went to who made the diagnosis. And I had kind of read an article, kind of knew a little bit about it, but but really didn't knew very little. And it was that second rheumatologist that said, "Oh, absolutely, this is what you have." And so I'd say rheumatology tends to be a good fit for a lot of people. If you're having a lot of um, POTS or dysautonomia type symptoms, POTS is one of the um, subsets of dysautonomia, then that can often be managed by a cardiologist or a neurologist, um, because those conditions are kind of a cross between the the cardiovascular system and the Mm -hmm. neurologic system are both greatly impacted. So I think it just depends on what kind of symptoms you're having.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, and I know for, for me and the dancers I work with, some of them have had great success with their primary care physician. Um, I will give them the, the 2017 diagnostic criteria. And they have carried it in to see their pediatrician and said, pretty much what you said, you know, it's been suggested I should get myself looked at. This is the criteria that I could find. Is there a way that we can talk about this? And the doctors have said, huh? I don't really know, let me read through this and let's, let's look at it. And then a month later have had a diagnosis of EDS and the doctor has said, all right, let's get you checked out by a cardiologist, let's get your eyes checked, you know. And at that point, the doctor is doing the research and moving forward and, and starting to man- manage that care for her. So um, it does work <laughs> if, That's you go awesome. in, if you go in respectfully and realistically with what is gonna be accomplished in this one session
1: you know real i'm so glad you added that word realistically because i will tell you you know even for myself when i have patients that have realistic expectations it lowers my own anxiety level <laughs> you know because because i i when when people are, are approaching it that way i feel like okay we will be able to work as a team here and mm-hmm. and we both have a similar idea as to the path forward so, I love that you added that that 's fantastic
0: so um, you know we 've been to the doctor we have looked at the the comorbidities we have we 've gotten a diagnosis or even just a, hey you 're somewhere on that spectrum disorder we 're going to keep an eye on it um, So, what does it mean to to live with it now you 've said there is no cure there 's management, and there 's um, preemptive management, I think as well. What are, what are some of the concrete things that someone can do to try to maintain their quality of life?
1: Right. And I would say that that the first thing to, to make sure that I, I want to mention is to keep in mind that there's no cure for, for most things. So yes, there's no cure for this, but but that's true for osteoarthritis or, you know, I mean, a the other forms of arthritis, for the most part, you know, we're, we're kind of managing symptoms with a lot of those other conditions right. as That's well. That's a great point. Yeah. So, so I, I just think that it's so easy to get discouraged and if we, what we, the things that we think greatly impact the actual, the physiologic processes that go on in our body. So when we are more stressed, that impacts the, um, the the hormones in our body and can actually, it's a physiologic thing. So changing our mindset can, can have huge um, benefits. So anyway, okay. So I have an acronym for the approach that I take. (laughs) We love acronyms. (laughs) Yes. Well, it just makes it easier, you know, too, for me to remember. So I have an acronym for the approach that I take to um, managing these disorders and it's men's PMMS. So there's actually, if you notice, there's three M's in there. <laughs> um, the first M is for movement. So I cannot stress enough how important it is to move and keep moving. And for each person, this is going to look different. But whenever possible, I think that having somebody like yourself involved in a person's care and in a person's um, you know, general picture of uh, wellness is crucially important because if I'm working with you, for example, um, or I have, a, I have a, um, a child that's working with you, you can look at them and you're going to be able to correct their alignment or give them specific exercises. I love the creative exercises that you do to help work Thank on. You. Yeah. I mean, you do such such great things and I and I loved doing getting to actually do your workshop. That was so much fun at iAdams <laughs> um, because... You have such such creative things that I think a lot of people get frustrated because they say, well, but I can't move. Everything, every movement that I do makes me hurt more. It requires a lot of creativity sometimes, and it can be very challenging to find the movements that you can do. But for most everybody, there are some movements that can be sorted out, but it often requires an expert like yourself to identify how? Where is the starting place? You know, because these for some of these people, like most of these people, I should say, just going into the gym and picking up a set of weights is not going to be beneficial. Um, you're not going to be able to see your own form. You may make things worse rather than better. So the first M is for movement, and I would encourage people to you know get as much advice and expertise as as possible, knowing that you know when I go to look in the mirror now, I've changed my alignment. So um, I think that's uh, the first thing. I, it's there for a reason. It's first in the in the list. The, the E is for education. I believe that having neuroscience education specifically related to pain can all by itself help pain processing in the body and reduce suffering. So there's a big difference between pain and suffering. So pain is the sensation is the actual sensation and suffering is when you have pain plus fear. And so if we can reduce that fear by having more education and understanding the role that our mind plays, we're not taking away like the source of the pain, but we're making the pain a lot less. So I've found this to be extremely beneficial and there's lots and lots of studies to back up that neuroscience education really does work. And education for the other aspects of this, you know, not just for the pain. Um, so the N stands for nutrition, and I know that we will be having an expert coming up, so I won't go into a lot of details, but I do talk with my patients a lot about nutrition. I have my own self experimented a lot with different nutritional strategies and have really found that it makes a huge difference in how I feel in my patient population, I have found that there's so much that can be done with nutrition to uh, you know greatly manage um, symptoms. So I think that's that, that's super super important. So the first S stands for sleep. So the relationship between sleep and pain and sleep and and basically any other function in the body is critically important. If we are not getting good quality restorative sleep, it affects our immune system, it affects Inflammation in the body; it affects pain processing. So, so this is um, critically important. So, the first S stands for sleep. The P stands for psychosocial. It is really important for everyone to have good social support. And sometimes, you know, we don't find that necessarily in our home environment. We may find that in a support group, or, um, you know, by connecting with other people online. And it's important to keep in mind that. Those kinds of support groups can work both ways, right? Too that if it's if it's mostly problem focused, that can be less beneficial than if it's solution focused. So I encourage people to, to really look for that, um, and and to look for people that you know understand and can help help you manage um, you know some of the other challenges that come along with this. Sometimes it's helpful to have individual you know one on one counseling. There are group counseling options that are available for people. Sometimes, you know, it can be important to have a psychiatrist in your, in your picture because they can manage, um, they can prescribe medications that will Mm -hmm. drastically affect how your uh, brain is processing pain and other signals. And, and I don't want people to think that, excuse me, that that's not necessarily like a, you know, a lifetime thing. You know, it could be that you just need that to get over this hump. So that so that can be extremely important, and then the the next M stands for modalities. So whether it's acupuncture or acupressure, or um, I know we mentioned movement before, but I would also you know um, and in that category I would talk about things like Pilates. But here you know it might be um, chiropractic. I get really nervous about, but I do right. have, I know I know some people do it. Um, and I have had patients that have gone and they're doing fairly high velocity things, I would be extremely cautious with that. Um, I think things like the acupuncture, acupressure are, are beneficial. Um, things like um, the uh, soaking in, in, a, in a hot tub or soaking in water can be very beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, doing movement therapy in water can be very beneficial. So there's a lot of different modalities that can be used. Things like a TENS unit, for example, transcutaneous um, stim- nerve stimulation. Um, again, I think part of the message that I need to get across here is that I think a lot of people, they, they are looking for the single thing that's going to cure them. And instead, I would encourage people to think of that it's, you get 2% from this and 5% from that and 10% from this other thing. And then it starts to add up to me- meaningful improvement. And the goal is, you know, to have a realistic goal, it's not to necessarily take away all pain, although of course that would be nice, but if we can get to the point where we no longer have pain brain, as I like to call it, but we have a quality of life that we're, you know, it, the pain, if, if it is still there, is just in the background, you know, um, So that, so that's the first M modalities. And then the second M stands for medications. So there's lots of medications that can be used for pain. Um, and some of them need to be compounded because they are, I prescribe them in a dose that is different than what the pharmaceutical company um, uses. So, for example, something like naltrexone, which was originally developed for um, alcohol and opioid addiction, can be used in a tiny dose, a microscopic dose, like one tenth the dose of the drug manufacturer can be used as an anti-inflammatory, anti-pain um, processing drug. And it can be uh, very, very beneficial, but it has to be compounded. So there's, there are some medications out there that can be useful. And then the S stands for supplements. So there's lots of different supplements that can be used for both pain and strengthening connective tissue. So I often will you know recommend some different supplements as well
0: that's excellent and and i know that you said just now that those it's those small changes across a wide spectrum that will really add up to meaningful improvement and i think that's so important for people to understand when you're when you're seeking out a doctor or you're seeking out help from anyone you know standing on your leg for 10 seconds at a time balancing isn't going to fix everything but standing on your leg for 10, 10 seconds at a time and getting better sleep and finding people to talk to and uh, overhauling your, your diet and finding supplements, those are the small changes that will add up. And it's so dipping into a, a wide variety of pools is what's going to be the magic bullet, I think. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes. Yes. You synthesized that perfectly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so what you're saying is that exercise is not dangerous for hypermobile people. Is that
1: correct? Exactly. Yes, definitely. I think, I think the, the key thing when it comes to exercise is finding what works best for you. And it can be challenging to find that sweet spot. And a lot of people talk about the boom or bust cycle. So what they'll do is they will just go, they finally have a day where they're feeling a little bit better and they overdo it. So they will, oh, I think I'm going to go for a run or, you know, it's something that they don't normally do. And that sets them back, you know so it, I think the an, an important thing for people to realize is number one, exercise needs to be highly individualized' it's, it's what is right for your body at that point in time, and how do you feel the next day? How do you feel the day after that? How do you feel a few hours later? Those are the important keys to look for. If you do something and the next day you're absolutely miserable and you can't even get out of bed, that was too much you know but if you're a little sore and you're a little like your muscles are a little sore that's okay Um, so i think that's the other thing that i try to get across is that it's kind of like a sunburn while you're sitting out at the beach you can't tell if you're sunburned or not if you're hypermobile, you can't necessarily tell while you're doing the exercise and that's for a whole variety of reasons we could discuss at another time but (laughs) but (laughs) but but while you're doing the activity it can be hard to figure out and um, this was something that was really challenging for me with Zumba, which is one of my absolute favorite loves. It's just <laughs> so so much fun, but I cannot let myself just freely go into it because I could be set back for weeks. Mm-hmm. And so I have had to learn like what's a safe range of motion for me, what's a safe amount, and and just learn by tr- trial and error. So it's important for people to, to pace themselves appropriately. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: well, and and as Moira said um, in one of our first episodes, they they injure more, hypermobile people injure more easily and take longer to recover. Right, and knowing that and understanding that and being careful and it's so hard for a dancer who wants to keep going and wants to push through whatever tendinopathy they're feeling in their foot or their <laughs> knee or whatever. And well, everybody else can do it. Why can't I? And just to right. understand that they are different and, and that they're in it for the long haul. They're, they're trying to run a marathon and not a sprint.
1: Yes, 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 exactly. But the bottom
0: line is exercise is very important and also should be highly individualized and judiciously uh, managed.
1: Correct, yes? and, and Correct. And you said something that also reminded me of another thing that Moira said, which is the dancer in uh, organizing their week. And I think that everyone can think about this in terms of organizing their exercise schedule, that you want that dancer to peak on opening night, not be past their peak. And I, I know that this is a really common problem now where dancers who were originally cast in these roles because of the fact that, and I, and I know a certain amount of this is, is really outside of their own control. So I, I hope that there are artistic directors that are going to be listening to these episodes and <laughs> understanding that it's in everyone's best interest to not overdo it for, for the dancer's body, for the non-dancer's body, because because yes, it's an ounce of prevention really is <laughs> worth a pound of cure. So if we can <laughs> stay away from that, you know, as she said, the dancer will do it if the, if or maybe you said it, if the dancers asked to do something, they will do it. Yeah. And you know, so, so we need to make sure that we are being mindful of that. And and one of my patients said, it's not the doing it's the stopping. And mm-hmm. I thought that was very interesting because it it's true while you're doing it. You, I mean, you can think about that a whole bunch of different ways. While you're doing the activity, you feel fine. Usually. Uh, and then afterwards, you you know how much how much you overdid it. Um, yes. But it's also but it's also yeah. But it's also the deconditioning that can happen if we right. have this black and white thinking of all or none. You know. So that's again where anyone who possibly can get to Dallas, Texas, <laughs> needs to get in to see you because because if you have an ankle injury, that doesn't mean that you should stop using other parts of your body. Right. You, should, you, you can stay conditioned in other parts of your body, but if we have an injury and then we decondition everywhere else, mm-hmm. that has all kinds of implications and, and can lead to kind of a dangerous spiral.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I 100% agree. That's a soapbox of mine. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> And, and I would love to work with anybody, but um, unfortunately, most people don't live in Dallas <laughs> <laughs> or in even in an area that has easy access to any hypermobility specialists because they are still relatively rare. So um, how can these people get up-to-date information on treatments and therapies that, that might
1: benefit them? So I think that the really important thing is to examine where you're getting your information from and make sure that you are getting information from credible sources. And the really challenging thing in this space right now is that the traditional big healthcare centers, like for example, Mayo Clinic where I trained, um, Cleveland Clinic, Johns Hopkins, while they have some amazing providers within those facilities, it's not necessarily the best place to go. And, and the reason why I'm going to say that is because I know I, I have patients in my practice who contacted Mayo Clinic. They, they were willing to travel to Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic said, we have nothing to offer you. I'm thinking of one patient in particular, but it, this, this is true for many of my patients. Mayo Clinic said, we have no, nothing to offer you. This one patient I'm thinking of that I've seen now only a handful of times, The first time she came to see me, she was such a mess. She came with her service dog. I ended up actually sending her directly to the emergency room from my office. And she came back the following day to finish the visit. She came back 30 days later, a completely different person. And it just was so upsetting to me that Mayo Clinic said, we have nothing to offer you. Because a lot of the things that I suggested to her were not, I did not, put her on a bunch of fancy prescriptions. I did take her off of some things. I did a lot of education with her and her mom and you know we we did make a lot of changes in that month. Don't get me wrong, but but she was dramatically improved in that month's time. Mm-hmm. But even me, I'm in, I'm right now in Wisconsin and I only have a license to practice medicine in the state of Wisconsin. So I I can take care of people who can travel elsewhere to Wisconsin or or at least I could, although that's changing. Um, I, I'm not sure where my practice actually is heading in the future. Um, it's a challenging space to, to be in, and I'm trying to myself personally even figure out what methods are there available with modern technology to get information to the most people in the most cost-effective way, because um, with Wisconsin Integrative Pain Specialists, the, the private practice that I've had, people have often flown with their families, they've stayed in a hotel several nights, um, and then they go back home, and now we're talking on the phone and having kind of you know, limited access. And so um, I think that the important thing I want people to know is that there are people, that, I'm not the only one who is really trying to get this information into the hands of the people who need it. Um, I, I'm working with a group of, in, an international group of people who are trying to help this population. And I will tell people that there are people who are writing emails at four in the morning and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, seven days a week. We are having um, our next conference is um, in, in New York. It, it's not a conference that like other people can, can attend because it's really a collaborative thing. It's, it's really a, it's more of a meeting than a conference. It's a putting all of our heads together and trying to come up with, you know, I'm an anesthesiologist. There's one other anesthesiologist in the group that I know of. We have radiologists, allergists, um, all of these different you know, specialists within this group. And I firmly believe that this information is going to get into the hands of people. It's just a matter of overcoming some of these barriers, like how do you deal with working across state lines or even mm-hmm. international lines mm-hmm. and, and cost issues that people have. So um, yeah, there's, are there challenges? Definitely. But um, there are definitely people who are trying to come up with solutions. So right. stay tuned.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and some of it for those people who feel isolated is just reaching out and doing their own research and then trying to get in touch with those people um, and trying to learn more from those people. That's how you and I met.
1: <laughs>
0: yes. Yes.
1: I love that story. Oh, my gosh. I love Can I tell that story? Yeah. Okay. So, so um, I little did I know that you and I would be doing this you know however much later It's, it's just crazy. I love this story. Um, so, I wrote an article in 2017 for a pain management journal. They asked me if I would write an article, and at that time, to be perfectly honest, I didn't even know that much about EDS, but they asked if I would write an article um, for, for this pain management CME journal and I was like, oh, what should I write about? And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, I should write about EDS, you know, pain management and hypermobility disorders. So I wrote this article. It got published in July of 2017. And Jennifer reached out to me. Well, I should first mention that, that normally this would only be available to subscribers. But being the optimistic person that I am, I contacted the publisher, and I said, please, please, please make this available open access. This is way too important of a topic. And so many people downloaded it that they made it available open access for twice the period that they originally promised to me. Yes. But anyway, yeah. So which was, which was fabulous. So Jennifer, uh, my email address was in there. Jennifer sent me an email and said, oh, I'm so fascinated in this topic. I would love to chat sometime. And I was so excited to get your email. And I said, and I wrote back and said, yes, we absolutely should, should chat. And. At the very first time that we spoke on the phone, I thought, oh my gosh, I have to meet this woman sometime. She is so, <laughs> she is so, so smart. And we have such complimentary skill sets because you know about so many things that I don't. And, you know, and I have information to share with you that, you know, mm-hmm. can benefit the people that you're taking care of. So um, it was so exciting. And little did I know that I guess it would be about two years later that we co-presented at iAdams right. and, and, and the funny thing about that was that was in Montreal, Canada, and the funny thing about that was you and I were sitting in a lecture hall that very first day and like trying to find each other and kind of texting, I think you're in this row, I think you're, because you know, we, we hadn't even met yet. <laughs> we had never
0: met in, in person, yeah, right?
1: we had not met in person, but we had been working collaboratively with the amazing and brilliant Dr. Bonnie Robson, who is yes. a psychiatrist in Canada, And the three of us had a presentation in Montreal. And so, yes, it was, to me, it's just an amazing story about how, you know, you reach out and you just have no idea where where that's going to lead. And with modern technology, you know, it's just incredible the things that we can accomplish because I think that, um, you know, hopefully we really have helped move the needle. And I hope that there's lots of people that will be listening to this podcast it's been absolutely amazing to have you as a guest co-host and your insights into you know all these different conversations that we've had with different people because your experience and expertise is so valuable so i just think it's so cool that it all started literally with an email you know
0: <laughs> <laughs> it really did and the moral of the story is don't be afraid to do your research and then don't be afraid to reach out to those people you know not not right. everyone can answer right away and you may never hear from some people but the the information is out there and all it takes is finding one doctor that will then find another and another and then will help you pull together that team
1: correct and the other thing that you did that was that was amazing when you had emailed me and then or this really evolved over that entire period of time right since you I think you I believe that you were the very first person to email me actually, like from, <laughs> Based from on the that article. article. Based That's on the funny. article. Yeah, it is very funny. There were, there were other people in there, but you, I'm quite sure you were the very first one because I remember thinking, oh, somebody read it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you don't know when you write something if anyone's right. going to read it or not, right? So, so I think that, that um, the other thing that you did that I think is an, is an important lesson is that you made it easy for me you know, you didn't. Ha- Again, getting back to the realistic expectations. You know, you didn't say, "Can you please send me, blah blah blah, twenty different things." You know, you were just like, "Hey, I would just, you know, love to chat sometime." And so, it made it feel like something that I really wanted to do, in a very easy and natural fit. And then we realized that we have so much in common.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is right. Um, and and the one of the things that has been so valuable for me um, in our friendship is the information that you have is coming from such a great uh, medical point of view, but not the, well, this is what I learned 20 years ago in medical school, so this is what it must be, but the, you are constantly researching and constantly kind of pushing those boundaries. And and we've seen research and, um, and information about EDS, especially hypermobility EDS, just kind of explode in the past couple of years. So um, could you talk a little bit about where where the research is on this right now and where do you hope it will focus just in the
1: coming years? So I I think that the biggest frustration to me is getting the information as quickly as possible from the hands of the researchers into the hands of the clinicians that are caring for patients. So When I opened my practice, which wasn't long after I published that article, when I opened my pain practice, I decided from the very beginning that I was only going to see patients part-time, and that was so that I could continue to do research. And it is a very time-consuming process to Mm -hmm. interact with this international group that I'm involved with and these other things that that I'm doing, try to stay up on the literature, et et cetera. And I think that we need to figure out better ways of getting information from the people that are caring for patients because that's research too it's just mm-hmm. it's like an n of one type research um it's it's maybe not the same kind of research as randomized double blind controlled trials which of course have their incredible place in the moving things forward but but at the same time are very um, challenging to set up and by the time usually that we have the data and publish it it's it's i don't want to say it's old but it's it takes time, right, so it's important to think about all of the information that we're gathering and and keep it in context. you know for me, if I've mentioned one person and that worked for that one person, that's still just one person you know um, so I think that that just figuring out how to especially with low risk interventions, how do we get that information as quickly as possible into the hands of people that can actually make those interventions. It's Mm -hmm. one thing if we're, if we're looking at cancer chemotherapy, you know, now we're talking major expense, major side effects, major risks, you know, we need a lot more data, but when it comes to things that are super low risk, and it makes sense, like for example, the dietary changes, you know, I think then we need to realize that the level of evidence should be different, you know. Um, So, but I'm glad that you mentioned about, about the research, because I think that we will be getting a lot more information in the future and that people should stay tuned understand that if they have a clinician who is working full-time raising a family you know that their their amount of time to do research is right. is not that big so so I think your strategy is a great one, bringing in that single piece of paper. If you want to bring in an article, that's fine too. But I would suggest highlighting, like, like even highlight a couple of sections. And again, very respectfully with a question mark, do you think this could apply? Not demanding like, you know, I want this, this and this and this done, but hey, I saw this and what do you think? It's just going to engage that person so, in a much more effective way.
0: Yes, you're absolutely right. And that's one small thing that everybody can do. Right. No matter how big their city or or any of that stuff. Right. Well, um, speaking of getting information out there into their hands, into people with these issues' hands, um, do you have any links or sites that you would like to share?
1: So I am trying to keep everything on the hypermobilitymd.com website. And I do have a... uh, I call it a newsletter, but just so people know, like other than uh, the rare instance when a couple of things happen relatively close together, you will not be inundated with emails. But if you sign up for updates on the hypermobilitymd.com website, there will be um, as new articles that, you know, certainly not every article, just certain ones are published. Or when there's a new episode of Bendy Bodies that I want people to be aware of um, or other updates to other things of information that i think are particularly relevant that's a good place to if you sign up for those updates that's a good place to um you know make sure that you're amongst the first people to be notified of things the website is quite new so we will be continuing to add more things to it so it's also a good place to uh, reach out through like the contact me link and let me know what are some things that you want to see on, for example, the Bendy Bodies podcast? So um, you can also email bendybodiespodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you like, what you don't like, what other guests you want to see. Um, we're going to be covering a lot of topics you know, related to dance, some topics that are not related to dance, other you know, things that are applicable to the general population from geneticists to... Um, you know, rheumatologists, and you know, we have a lot of other you know guests lined up. Um, so basically, uh, that's kind of the the hub, though, if you will, the hypermobilitymd.com website.
0: Excellent. That's a great place to start for people looking for information, and uh, and I know it delivers them to some other great spots as well. Yes. Well, it's been a treat interviewing you (laughs) and getting to share all of the wealth of information you have on uh, hypermobility spectrum disorders um, with our listeners. And I'm so grateful that that information is out there now for them to use. Um, You have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today, our guest has been Dr. Linda Bluestein, the host of Bendy Bodies. I'm Jennifer Molnar. That's it for today. But we have lots more great guests coming up. So stay tuned. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. Please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Bendy Bodies YouTube channel as well. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. Visit our website, www.bendybodies.org, for more information. For a limited time, you could win an autographed copy of the popular textbook, Disjointed, Navigating the Diagnosis and Management of Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders, just by sharing what you love about the Bendy Bodies podcast. On Instagram, tag us at Bendy underscore Bodies, and on Facebook at Bendy Bodies Podcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-hosts and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. The thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This podcast is intended for general education only and does not constitute medical advice. Your own individual situation may vary. Do not make any changes without first seeking your own individual care from your physician. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast.